Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I started to push a bit harder and be more like, I really want to achieve that again because visibility and representation is really important to me. Of the one idea of autism that exists, people don't seem to understand or acknowledge that it isn't so black and white. I also learned being raised and socialised as a woman to internalise all of that. So outwardly, people wouldn't realise that, but inside, I was just all over the place. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher and educational mentor. And I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Hello, and welcome back to the final episode of Series 8. I can't quite believe we're already here. And I'm also not sure if I can contain myself for the joy that I am feeling in introducing you to today's guest. She is formidable and a refreshing soul who reflects the most pleasing and defining aspects of Gen Z. If we had to have a picture perfect pop star, it's unlikely that you'd get a closer reflection of this generation's fluid intersections than our guest, the wonderful Kat Burns. Kat is the 22-year-old platinum-selling singer-songwriter from Stratham, South London. Her artistry has been defined as elegant, frank, conversational, and the melodies are so instantly familiar that they feel like they've been plucked from the sky. The former Brit school student went from busking on the South Bank to mastering TikTok in lockdown to high fame, singing a mix of her favourite covers and original music. Described by Sony Music as a blend of gospel and pop influences with guitar-led indie music, Kat has garnered much attention for her music. Notably, she has been nominated for three Brit Awards, starting with her debut single Sober in 2018. Kat has continued to release music and attract a massive following in the music community. Kat identifies as queer. In an interview with the Gay Times, she explained that she initially struggled to reconcile her sexuality with her ethnicity, stating, If you're a black woman, I want you to feel heard and seen. We are vulnerable people who are capable of having lots of emotions, and being a black queer woman adds a layer to that. She chronicled her experiences with coming out to her family in her song, Free. In April 2023, in addition to everything else she was coping with, Burns was diagnosed as autistic, which she announced to her multitude of followers on social media, alongside her concurring diagnosis of ADHD. She has often found being neurodiverse helpful in her creative process, but getting to this place where she was diagnosed took an extremely long time. We will explore this and many other aspects of Kat's wildly successful journey to where she is today, including being an advocate for young women of colour and difference in our conversation. I, for one, cannot wait. 
So with that, I warmly and very excitedly welcome today's guest, the fabulous Kat Burns to the Elevate podcast. Hello, Kat. Welcome. Hello. This is a real exciting moment for me. I really can't tell you how long I've waited to talk to somebody who's in a got enormous amount of influence and success in, in terms of the way you speak and the messages that you share. But let's go right back, learning about the young cat. Tell us about the most memorable parts of growing up and tell me what shaped you into the person that you are now. School really was quite a formative time for me. We all went on like a holiday when it was like 2007. It was like a massive group. It was my mum, her best friends, all of her kids. And that was a really like key moment in my childhood that I really like remember and attach a lot of positive memories to because it was like a three weeks of just like joy and happiness and like no care or anything else that was going on. And I think just listening to music in, in the house and I think those three kind of moments, school, that holiday, and then just like listening to music in the house with my mum. Amazing. In terms of school, would you say you had a positive experience growing up? How would you describe it and how would your teachers maybe describe you? I didn't enjoy school at all. I didn't like its concept and its idea. I think it definitely changed when I went to Brit school because it was way more relaxed, which is what I liked. I had friends and I was very quiet. I didn't like to get in trouble. I just kind of stuck to the rules. I didn't really want to draw too much attention to myself. And I wasn't in your face as a young student. I just kind of wanted to get in and get out as quickly as possible. Do you think now, looking back on it, given what you know about yourself now and, and some of the differences that you might have had in terms of the way you learned at school, did that shape your experiences and your memories of it not being a fond place? Yeah, I think my I had just very, I still, I mean, it doesn't go away, but I just, I've always had quite a black and white thinking of things. And I think my idea of school was we have to all get in at 8.30, just like a hoover, we're just sort of sucked in and then like let back out at 3.15 and we're kind of forced to be around people I didn't ask to be around. And sometimes that's a positive thing because I, I made like a friend that we're still really close to this day, but I just found it really hard to wrap my head around. I found it very difficult to hide my dislike for things and people. So I kind of, but I also learned being kind of raised and socialized as a woman to internalize all of that. So outwardly people wouldn't realize that, but inside I was just all over the place. That's a really vivid image, the Hoover one. I hadn't quite thought of that. Being a teacher myself, I think that's a very eye-opening way of looking at receiving your pupils in the morning. What adjectives would you use to describe yourself today then? And were they different from when you were young or a teenager? The first thing that comes to my head is that I'm quite pedantic. But again, I think that is also a trait from my autism. I like facts to facts, especially if if somebody is relaying something that I may or may not have said, or there's something that there's some facts in there it has to be correct I can't move past something until we acknowledge that that is incorrect and I, it's something I don't know why it's been such a thing so I think I'm, I'm pedantic I think I have been and kind of always will be very empathetic and caring um, and I try and when I was younger and still now just try and see the light to everything and try and find the joy and the laughter and things and I think my family have always been that way well we're quite a if you don't laugh, you'll cry kind of way of going through life. We could be crying our eyes out and then 
one of us can come into the room and just we just burst into laughter because I think it just kind of helps make you realize that a lot of things in life aren't that deep we make them deeper than they are sometimes so I definitely say humorous caring empathetic and pedantic I love that. That brings me back to the idea around when you said some of the pivotal things in your memory of your younger days is being around music and then laughing obviously is wonderful. How did singing play into this? Did it come naturally to you? Is it something you were always doing as well as a kid? Were you always interested in music? Was it a creative outlet for you? I always loved music. My mum always loved music. She put me and my sister in like a summer school weekend thing in Wales where it's like a performing arts thing where we would kind of go there all the time. And it was interesting because I've kind of followed behind my sister a lot. She was the one that was like at the forefront. She was acting, she was singing, she was dancing, she was doing it all. And I kind of just like observed and watched knowing that I wanted to do it as well, but didn't have that same confidence yet. And then I kind of was just, I think, lucky that there were people that kind of observed that in me and was like, oh, why don't you come and let's record something? And I remember I was like five at this summer school thing and we recorded a high school musical song. And that even that five years old, I think that was a real moment for me of like, oh, I really like singing and this is really fun. And then it kind of just never went away. I think I played basketball for a couple of years when I was like nine to 11, but singing was what I kept getting drawn to. And then I just continued to do competitions and applied for anything that I could kind of do. And I think because it was such a special interest to me, I didn't feel that fear when I was on stage or anything like that. I just wanted to do it more than the anxiety around speaking to people and things like that. The joy that it brought me was overrided any other kind of feelings of anxiousness that I would have around people. Oh, wonderful. That's really nice to hear. I think the fact that you identified it as young as five is pretty fantastic. A lot of us don't find anything that keeps us excited or gives us this much joy and also allows us a form of escapism almost when you're dealing with the high and dry of life and working out that school isn't what you're feeling. You're not feeling your joy there, but you're finding it in in something else. Did you realize how good you were? I thought I was good. And then I think I, when I I had, I was like a talent show when I was about 11, it was like year six, I did it. And then there was like another parent that came up to my mum and me and she was like you have a real gift please don't ever stop you're really really good and I think that was a moment where I was like oh maybe I am quite good and then I just kind of kept going but I was my I was my biggest critic back then I still am now but even more so when I was younger when I think back to how hard on myself I was when it came to singing I think I was about 13 or 14 where I had to really force myself to make that switch of like it's not going to be perfect I'm not going to sound absolutely perfect when I go on stage and if I hit a bum note it doesn't mean that the whole performance was rubbish but I think that also comes from being a woman of colour and feeling like you have to do everything perfect in order to be seen in the same light as our white counterparts so I think I had that ingrained into me at such a young age of like it have to be perfect or there's no point in doing it because I'm not going to be be seen as good um and then I think when that point when that idea of it kept being proved wrong to me, at least, I then was like, well, this idea of like, I have to make it perfect or no one will like it is kind of, it's incorrect for me because I would say to people, oh, I messed up this note and people would be like, I literally did not notice at all. And then I'm like, oh, okay, okay, maybe I've been overthinking this a bit too much. 
the perfectionism tendencies they seem to creep in a lot in adolescence don't they particularly for young girls so yeah I get that so who are the singers that you looked up to who were your favorites and I know Ed Sheeran is somebody you admire a lot from the research I've done are there others yeah Ed Sheeran um India Ari Corey Kelly there's a lot of gospel artists I really love Vocally, I think that's where I kind of learned how to sing and how to be particular on the notes that I choose and thrills and tricks I put in the songs. I think especially in gospel music is very deliberate and it's very chosen. And I think that's something that I definitely took when I was singing and how I want to sing. And I was always someone that didn't want to put too many thrills and tricks in there and kind of focus on the tone and the message that I was sharing rather than the decorative bits around it. And you've met Ed Sheeran, haven't you? Have you sung with him as well? Or I supported him on tour. Hopefully I'll get a song with him one day. Fingers crossed. I mean, that's pretty amazing. So you're clearly a grafter and you clearly work very hard and I can sense the passion that you've got for the music that you do. But okay, maybe maybe the Ed Sheeran moment was it. But was there a breakthrough moment that you look back at your life and you think, wow, um, I'm going to be a pop star. I'm going to be, I'm doing this. This is it. This is what I'm going to be doing for my life. I actually think it was when my song got to number two on the charts, I thought, this is a bit crazy. So that was 2022. I think I was like, wow, it's possible for me to do this. Because I think for so long, I was like, oh, hopefully, or I believe that I can, but sometimes it's nice to be able to, to really see it. So I think when I saw it, I was like, okay, wow, this is possible. And it could be possible for me to do this again and get another song like it does as well. And I think from there was when I, I started to push a bit harder and be more like, okay, I, I really want to achieve that again because visibility and representation is really important to me. And I want to be able to show that I wasn't a one hit wonder as well. I wanted, I didn't want it to just be one song and then, which is completely fine. There's so many people that, have amazing that amazing song that has taken care of them for the rest of their life and hacked off to them and if that was 20 or 30 years ago I would be absolutely fine and but with this day and age and how artists earn a living it's just not possible so I think I I definitely pushed to achieve that again and and just see how far I could get and I feel like the world is your oyster and you're only getting started Kat your music is very much inspired by your personal experiences from what I can tell. A lot of it becomes so relatable because I think you speak from the heart when you write your lyrics. But are there other sources of inspiration that you've got other than your own personal stories? And could you talk us a little bit through your creative process? Yeah, it's either personal stories or it's through conversations with people. If I'm talking to my friends and they're going through something, I'll kind of drop down in my mind like some certain words or certain takeaways from the conversation that I feel like could be made into a song. Observing, people watching is one of my favourite things to do and seeing what's going on in other people's lives and how that could be turned into a song that can help them. My creative process varies. I think if I'm going into a recording session or a studio session with a producer and a writer that I feel very comfortable with and have prior history of making a song or songs that I love with then I can kind of go in blind go into the session and just word from it and talk and kind of almost like have a therapy session where we pluck out things that could be made into a song if I'm going into a session with somebody I don't know 
and don't know what they can do yet, I will go in with an idea and a concept and kind of build off that. And then sometimes if I'm going in with somebody that I do know, and I've had a really creatively fulfilling week where I've got loads of ideas down, then I can kind of just pluck an idea out of my note page and then we can just write from there. So it pretty much varies. And then I will usually come up with the lyrics, the melody and like the chord all at once. I don't really like to do them separately. I think that they all should and are cohesive in my brain. Like I wouldn't be able to come up with the melody without the lyrics because the lyrics help for me set the mood and the theme and then the chords it all should just connect essentially so you're not one of these people or are you that wakes up in the middle of the night and keeps that notepad next to you with ideas or are you a night owl do you have a place you go to or is it just something more fluid than that when you're in your flow you're in your flow it could be any time it can be any time but it always is random if i've got like a if a song idea comes to me or really a melody and a, and a lyric that comes to me randomly it will usually be in the middle of the night and if I can't seem to get out of my head or I really like it then I have to voice note it down I was saying to my family I said when it comes to ideas and creativity I always believe if there's an idea that you haven't that comes to your brain and you don't write it down instantly it will just go into somebody else's brain so I have to write it down as soon as I get it otherwise I will find myself two months down the line hearing a song that I had the exact same concept for all because I didn't just jot it down as soon as it came to me. So you've got like a perma notepad, <laughs> whether it maybe it's your phone these days. Yeah, it would just be my notes page and I'll just wake up and quickly write it down or voice note it and then I can go back to sleep. Fantastic. I love that. This is a bit of an unfair question. It's like asking a parent if they have a favourite child. And I appreciate that you may not have a favourite one. But is there a song that you're extra proud of or favour more than the others? And why? It's hard. There's one song called um, Free, which is about coming out. And I think that one means a lot to me because it's helped a lot of people, a lot of people who it's not safe for them to come out and they listen to that song and live within that song and feel free within it or they've used it to share with their parents or a family member and they noticed the family member was way more receiving to it because of how vulnerable the song is itself so I'm kind of in in two minds between free and there's another song called sleep at night which to me means something completely different to what it will mean for other people and I really like the idea of music meaning whatever it can mean for anybody and I think because that song has helped me in my life be able to move forward, hearing it do the same for other people is, has been really nice, but do the same in a different way. So I think those two. Funnily enough, that both of those really resonated with me as well. When I listened to Sleep at Night, it did take me back to one of my favourite quotes from Michelle Obama's, when they go low, we go high. I just couldn't stop thinking about that. And I think maybe I feel things quite deeply sometimes as well and find it hard to move on from certain things. So, and I know a lot of young girls in, in friendships and, and changing friendships can also relate to that. So I think you're right. Both of those were definitely big ones on my list when I went through your songs. Talking about free and what it's done, how rewarding, first of all, that must be for you to know that you've created something, put something out into the world that young people can go to and use as a safety net, as a resource, as a source of hope even, it must be incredible. But in order to write that song, and maybe if you are open to it, could you talk us through what it was like for you to work it out for yourself? And how did you go about sharing your 
identity and your preferences with your family? Was that tough for you? Was it tough for you to admit to yourself? Was it tough to admit to them? It's very hard to word because I always say I feel lucky that I have a very accepting and loving family. And then in the same breath, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be luck. Our loved ones should be unconditional. It shouldn't be conditional based on who you love. So I'm always in two minds whenever I say I feel lucky, but I also know the reality of a lot of people's lives where they aren't accepted by the people that are supposed to love them unconditionally. So I think for me, I think I came to terms with it actually through social media, the algorithm picking up on what videos that I liked and what other people I seem to identify with on the app and started just sharing more videos talking about sexuality and how you can figure out yours and and what it actually means and so many preconceived ideas on what how to know whether you are or you aren't and all these kind of things and I think having that information source of social media to be able to just help me wrap my head around it was really helpful and once I kind of accepted that with it myself I felt a massive weight off my shoulders because it was like a eureka moment of like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. It makes so much sense as to why I just didn't connect with men. I didn't, I didn't, there was just no connection and why I felt like the bad guy because they would connect with me, but I just didn't feel that same connection back. And it was a real moment where I was like, wow, this makes so much sense. And then it was then met with fear of, of telling my family not so much not my stuff but more my mum because I because I had seen so many videos and just horror stories essentially of people who were as close as they could be with their with their mum with their dad and as soon as they 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 came out or they they said anything it was they were just met with immediate resistance they were kicked out they were they're on the street they're living on their friend's sofa and all of these things where I was like wow so it that actually doesn't matter how close you are with your family I don't know and of course you know the rational side of my brain was like no but mum loves us unconditionally so it's gonna be fine I was 20 20 so it was in lockdown yeah being 20 and coming to that realization and being able to sit your parents your mum down what gave you the courage then to say I've got to do this I'm gonna I'm not gonna worry I'm gonna do this I'm gonna tell them if I didn't my home wouldn't feel like a safe space because so much of our conversations with people and love is such a big part of so many people's lives. And if I felt as though I couldn't share that, I couldn't share my experiences when I decided to then date or be able to talk about the community. And if I were, if I didn't feel like that was a safe space for me to do that, home would no longer feel like a safe space. So it felt like I, it was something that I needed to do in order to feel safe within my home. It definitely took a few tries. Like I would come into my mum's room and show her a video of somebody else coming out to their mum or their family. And she'd go, oh, that's really lovely. And then I'd go, okay, bye. And then I'd leave. And then the next day I'd come back and show her another video. And she'd be like, again, that's really nice. And I'd go, cool, bye. And then I'd leave again. She didn't have any questions for you after the video. She just commented on how nice it was. Yeah, I think it was probably the third time where she was like, why do you keep showing me these videos? Like, is there something that you would like to tell me? And then I, at first I said, I'm sapiosexual, which is where you're attracted to the mind. And it doesn't matter who that, or what form that comes in. And she was like, OK. And then I think it was probably like three or four weeks after she kind of came downstairs into the kitchen and just asked me a million questions. And then... I answered all of them and then she was like cool I understand now thank you and then 
my sister, it was really easy. I just sort of said, hey, I am not straight. And then she was like, oh, so what kind of girls do you like? And I was like, ew, stop. Please just stop that. So it was a very smooth experience. And a real sense of relief. I definitely know people that have to live almost double lives where they have to hide this part of their identity and they aren't able to be as free in their own home. So I get this idea of being able to show up as your whole self in your own home to feel safe. And I tell people all the time, like, if it's not safe for you to come out, don't do it. There's people that will say, oh, I really want to come out. But, you know, my family aren't accepting and they've, they've used a lot of language to describe other people before. That just doesn't. And I just, just say, don't do it. Just wait until you've moved out. You're not reliant on them in a financial sense or anything like that. And you've got your own sort of life set up. And then if you feel like it's something that you need to do for yourself, then you can do that. But I always would say only when it's safe to, because you just don't know. And for your sanity, really. Life's not fair sometimes, is it? I guess it is hard to suppress things that you want to be able to share with people that are, like you said, supposed to love you unconditionally. Are we equipped? Do we know? We sign up to parenting. We don't actually know what we're doing half the time. That's what I, I I always think. Me and my mom have had conversations about it of like when people decide that they want to be parents, are they really accepting that this is this child or this young girl, boy, whoever that they're bringing into this world is not them and they're going to have their own lives and they are going to do what they want to do. And your job is to just guide them and help them when they need it and love them unconditionally throughout that. And I think a lot of people who become parents love their children conditionally and they don't even realise it until something that they say that doesn't sit right within their ecosystem is triggered. That's when the conditional part of their love comes out and they go, yeah, no, that's not. And I think a lot of people have to ask themselves what inner work they have done before they have a child or or whilst having their child, like what work they need to do internally. I think I heard Seth Rogen say it once, the amount of theory and testing you have to go through to get a driver's license is pretty rigorous. But to go and be a parent, <laughs> you don't need any kind of sort of self-reflection ideas. And yeah, I think many of us are guilty of projecting our own expectations or living our life vicariously through our children. And, and that is something that creeps into adolescence more and more because teenagers are really working out who they are and, and, and learning that. And I have to tell you, if I'm honest with you, that I went on this unconditional understanding search of what it means to love my child when my son was diagnosed with autism at the age of five I didn't want to accept it I did everything and anything I could to try and fix it I remember feeling scared of being able to love him because he had this condition the shame I felt for feeling those feelings and then of course I needed to seek some help and and really follow that learning curve of understanding what it means to bring in somebody into your life and 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 how you do accept them for all the things that they are. And it's still not an easy road for me. There are days where I'm just not sure that I'm doing right by him. And that really then got me into the world of teaching and helping kids with differences, learning differences of all different kinds. And I know what an amazing advocate you are for all people with neurodiverse brains. It takes a lot of courage, I think, to talk about them. So sharing with the world that your brain is wired differently. And I know you've been really open about both your ADHD and your autism. But they weren't confirmed to you 
when you were a kid, right? It was much more, it was much later. And I wondered what the process was like for you in terms of identifying this and seeking the support you needed. It's interesting because I think, especially now with both diagnosis, obviously my sister then also getting an ADHD diagnosis, it made it very apparent that our household was a neurodivergent home. That was a reason why there was such a delay because my mum just never saw any of the things that I needed as different or weird or out of the ordinary. She was just a very solutions-based parent. So I would have meltdowns when I was I was young. I would I couldn't deal with certain materials. I couldn't eat certain food textures because getting my hair washed, I could not deal with the water in my eyes. I would completely just turn into a, a different person. I was so distressed and unregulated. She would just think, okay, so what is it that's triggering you? And then figure that out and then go, okay, well, I'll just get you a cap that doesn't get the water in your eyes. And then as soon as she got me the cap and it didn't go in my eyes, I sat there and allowed her to wash my hair. And it was like, she was just a very solutions-based parent. And I think because her brain worked the same, she didn't see any of it as weird. So she would just carry things around with her that she knew brought me comfort instead of fighting with me when I would be distressed or a meltdown or anything like that her priority was just how do I stop this like what is the what is the trigger how do I soothe that and get you back into a state of regulatedness so I think that definitely took me longer to realize the difference in my brain and then I think because I was such a sponge when I was younger I didn't understand people at all and I think that then became my special interest of really wanting to understand people and their brains and why people did the, the things that they did and like understand that about myself. I've been reading a book called Adults with Autism and it talks a lot about environment and how you could have an autistic person go into a workplace that's extremely autistic friendly where it's low light, it's sensory pleasing, it's all of these things and they work and they can work to the best of their ability versus a non-autistic friendly environment. So I think with my life, my life wasn't demanding of me until I signed my record deal and I think that was what everything kind of changed because the exact things that I would struggle with were the exact things that were expected of me as an artist it was meeting new people all the time it was speaking to new people all the time it was wearing itchy clothes that shoots it was having to make a good impression maintain eye contact with people it was all the things that I struggled with it was traveling it was going to the airport it was all things I hated but because I didn't do them often or really have to do them at all prior to that moment I was able to continue to suppress and, and ignore that side of me or that or ignore me really and then once that was highlighted to me on a day-to-day -day basis and I had no time to unmask and recharge and decompress by myself that was when it, it came to an all-time high where I was just unable to do anything and I was like, I need to figure this out. And then my, and once I got my ADHD diagnosis, it made sense, but it also didn't explain the rest of how I was feeling. And there was the just that inherent feeling of feeling different to everybody else and feeling like I just couldn't understand the world the way everybody else did. And a lot of things just didn't come naturally, especially with connecting to people and how to handle people. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. And then when I got the autism diagnosis, I was like, that makes so much sense. And it's sad that it was so late. I'm sorry that it was so long. I know that in previous interviews, you've also expressed that 
some of the challenges of getting that diagnosis may have led were part and parcel to do with the fact that you were a woman of color. Also, females and autism is just only becoming part of the story now, right? It used to be considered a condition for only boys, but clearly not. What can we do, do you think, that could alleviate some of this lack of knowledge, ignorance around girls with differences, women of color being on the back foot? I think there's lots of things we can do. I think research just needs to be more inclusive of people's backgrounds and experiences within that. I think only liking certain food textures very much varies from different cultures of people's background because there's different cultural dishes with people that maybe an autistic an autistic person or an autistic girl might absolutely love that meal and to someone doing testing they think oh well there's too many different flavors in that there's too many different things in that but to that autistic person that's their comfort meal that they could have every single day and it might be it might have loads of different spices and flavor to it the criteria is very black and white and it doesn't allow nuance and I think for me one of my stims has always been just taking out my braids putting it back in taking out my braids and putting it back in and to the naked eye again or the criteria or whatever they wouldn't see that as a stim but to me that's something that brought me a lot of comfort and it was just a, a thing that I couldn't stop doing and I think there's so many things within loads of people's different cultures that they'll do that I think the criteria need to allow for nuance within that and acknowledge that as well there's so many statistics coming finally kind of coming out about undiagnosed autistic women and just how high that percentage is and how high percentage of undiagnosed autistic people unfortunately take their life and because they weren't given that that support or that acknowledgement I think because of the one idea of autism that exists people don't seem to understand or acknowledge that that it isn't so black and white I know it's terrifying isn't it because I think even one of the fears I had and I've talked a little bit about my own journey with my son but that came from a sense of fear because I only knew one version of autism, which is probably Rain Man and the wrong one to have. And the checklist, of the, and this is my son's now 13, so this is only going back eight years ago. It took him four or five rounds of being looked at by different professionals because they couldn't quite put their finger on it. He didn't tiptoe. He had eye contact. None of it made sense to me as a parent. It's such a confusing place. I can only imagine what it's like for the child who's going through all of this. And so getting that for you must have been, as you said, oh, gosh, now it makes sense is a real eye opener and something hopefully we can start to build more awareness around. Just don't make it such a narrow minded and a small checklist of things that you're looking for. The criteria at the moment and the message it puts out about autistic people is that we are just these emotionless robots that are unable to connect and have any empathy or sympathy towards people. When actually we're so sensitive to everything around us and so hyper aware of everything around us that it, it there's such big feelings within us that later diagnosed autistic people and older autistic people would say that they're overly empathetic, they're overly sympathetic, they're so aware of people's feelings and so aware of people's facial expressions and their intentions and what they mean and, and things like that. And I saw a video that was about a girl who was recently diagnosed as autistic and her younger brother was diagnosed with autism, I think when he was maybe like two. And she was looking back at her childhood and realizing that her mum was making her and her sister teach 
her brother how to socialize and exist within the world. So that was how she was able to go under the radar for so long because she could do eye contact, she could do speaking to people, she could make friends and all these ideas that are presented that autistic people are just unable to do. Well, what about the girls that aren't diagnosed and we just have to learn and we just have to mask and figure it out as we get older? And then it comes to a halt at a certain point where life becomes demanding or something, there's a shift or something that goes, my brain does not work the same way here. And I need to figure out why, because I can't continue this way. To carry the weight of the world, follow these expectations without some support and some help. Yeah, of course, that makes total sense. So tell me, Kat, going back to your own ways of coping and finding yourself to regulate you have a massively busy I mean you've just come off tour with Sam Smith you're obviously doing lots of amazing things fantastically well deserved and I'm so pleased that we've got somebody like you in the light that can share these messages with so I think that's a huge achievement and I'm I'm incredibly proud of what you're doing but how do you cope with the pressures the pros and the cons that come with being in the public eye it's hard enough for someone who's neurotypical Uh, well for a long time I didn't I think actually my neurodiversity has helped me in a lot of situations with being in the public eye and growing and I still see it as a job as much as I love it so much. It's it's my job and it's work and my ego is not going to be wrapped around it. And I think because I am a perfectionist, I will look at my career and go, I'm still not where I want to be. I haven't I haven't got a debut album out. I don't have more songs out that people connect with. I think I'm finally starting to manage it well since my diagnosis and having the luxury or the privilege to be able to sit my team down and say, this is what I need moving forward and it actually be respected. Um, Because I think a lot of autistic people who are in the corporate world do not have that same freedom. So I don't take it lightly that I can sit my team down and and say, I'm not going into work for more than three days a week. I have to have two days where I am at home and I can decompress and I can completely unmask. And I can say, if I have to travel and go on tour or something, I'm not going to go away for more than two to three weeks at a time. I just I just can't do that because I have to have a sense of routine that I can come back to. And I'm able to put boundaries in place and that be respected, which has been really helpful in managing the stress of it and I think there's still more to be done I think it's it's also about being transparent with my audience as well and I think because I'm honest and and I spoke about my diagnosis I notice when I'm meeting fans they're more gentle and they're less crazy as they would be with maybe other people where they'd kind of run and scream and be crazy I think they're way more like chilled or even if they do come overwhelmed with excitement And they're met with me, who's just like, hi. Read your energy. Yeah, meet you where you are. You've got people like Simone Biles, Lewis Capaldi, people in the public eye who have neurodiverse conditions and had to quite honestly say, I'm going to take a break or I'm not going to take part in this competition or actually I'm not performing next year. I feel now because of people like you, we're able to actually show empathy properly and I'm trying to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and says oh okay this is what this person needs right now and it's out there much more than it used to be I feel like it used to be a source of shame do you agree with that yeah a lot of people within the creative or 
entertainment space or sporting space who become successful kind of understand the feeling of you're not allowed boundaries or abilities to listen to yourself and say no until you have earned it. So until you are of a particular level of success, that's when you can start to say no and that's when you can prioritise yourself. But a lot of people, by that point, you've already lost it. People now who are, I think with Lewis Capaldi especially, we visibly saw the distress that he was in when he was performing and it was only people who don't have any sort of empathy or care would not look and say, he needs a break, he's been working so hard, he's been here, there and everywhere. So when he did make that post and said, and said guys, I'm going to go away now, it was met with admiration and respect for actually putting himself first because we see that. And I think more artists, more people are being more vulnerable with the audience and being truthful about how they're doing and saying, I'm so sorry, I'm going to have to cancel this too, guys, but I'm really struggling mentally and I'm not going to be able to show up for you the way that I would want to. And it's met with, with fans being completely fine, take your time. And I think when the vulnerability in the past to these big companies thought that being vulnerable wasn't the way forward. And now because there's more conversations about mental health going on, the idea of people not having breaks and, and things like that, it's just not taken lightly anymore by the masses anymore. It's like people need it. We need time to rest. It's so true. I could talk to you for hours, Kat. I feel like we're only getting started and I've already been talking to you for ages. So I'm cognizant of what a busy person you are. There are probably many, many youngsters who are looking up to you right now, listening to every word you say, hanging on to every song you release. And they're wondering, how, how do I get to where she is now? What advice do you have for young people? I would probably just say there's no rush. Because um, I think sometimes we, especially as a young person, you think that you have no time for some reason, or you're made to feel like there's no time, but there's no rush. Um, journaling can really help. Prompted journaling, I found, was really, really helpful rather than blindly writing things on the paper, because there would be days where I would have loads to write about, but then there'd also be days where I'm just like, I haven't got anything to say. So I think having that prompted journaling can really help. And I also think there are so many resources out there that have like self-reflection journaling and self-discovery journaling prompts that can really help you understand who you are. We all have gut feelings. We all have a part of us that we know exists. And whether we choose to acknowledge it or not is sometimes just down to time and it being the right time. So I would just probably say journaling will be your best friend as you go through life here here to that i only started journaling four years ago five years ago but it's been one of the best things i've done so i couldn't agree with you more so a few questions i do a rapid fire at the end one thing before we start the rapid fire if you could go back now knowing what you know about yourself and could whisper something to your pre-teen early teen self what would you say you are different but that's okay don't beat yourself up about it it's okay it's fine love it okay here we go it's rapid fire a song that you could name that instantly puts a spring in your step and changes your mood to something positive. Now you've said it, the Stevie Wonder song, the title is completely left my brain, but it's the, it's the one where he talks about music being a language. Music is a world within itself. That's the one that gets me. If you could invite a celebrity over to have dinner with, who would it be? I'd probably invite Sam Smith because we get on so well. I feel like there's more advice that I could get from Sam. Oh, nice. I'd love to have a seat at that dinner table if I could. The best movie, something that energizes you. The best movie is this animation movie from, I think it's Pixar, called Meet the Robinsons. Came out in 2007. 
It's one of my favorite movies ever. Excellent. Best advice you've ever received? Learn how to say no. You're stuck on a desert island. You're only allowed one type of cuisine to be stranded with. You would choose? Italian, because I love pasta. Fill in the blank. My superpower is? My superpower is my ability to laugh at anything. I find a joy in anything. That is incredible, Kat. A reason in itself to be completely inspired with and end this interview on such a lovely note. Thank you so much for your time. What's next for you? What can we expect? Is there another single coming out or are you working on an album? Yeah, we're currently working on an album. It's almost finished. So hopefully it will be out next year. That's what's taking up my time at the moment. So hopefully that will be out next year, which is very exciting. And are there any more gigs where we can look forward to? Are there any concerts we can come and see you at live in the UK? This year, no. Next year, yes. Oh, excellent. Anyone that doesn't follow you already, I feel like anyone who knows you probably does, but anyone looking to follow you more, what's the best platform? I will link it all in my show notes, but do you want to tell us what they are? Best platform would probably be Instagram. It's just Cat Burns. TikTok is also Cat Burns. And YouTube is also Cat Burns. Yeah, you are an absolute joy to speak with. It's been such a pleasure to be in your company. Thank you for everything you're doing, not just for the generation that I'm working with teaching, but for people like me and parents and educators, I think we learn so much from what you're doing and all the things that you're putting out there. So wishing you all the very best and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.